Don't let us be like Jonah. <laughs> That's right. Father, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for the testimony that you bear through, uh, through the story of Jonah. Uh, Lord, I ask that you would uh, be with uh, Aaron this morning, that you would communicate through him to us and our hearts. Um, we're so thankful that you are speaking uh, to us still. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm ready for some sunshine. I know, the rain's good. It's necessary. I'm ready for some sunshine. Anyone else's lawn just get murdered this past winter? My lawn is so dead this spring. I'm not the only one? All right. I guess it wasn't my fault. I was going to blame someone in my house, but... Um, we're finishing up the story of Jonah, which is a, a weird story by any measurement. And uh, there, there's a tendency in the Old Testament stories, especially the fun stories, is to reduce the stories to sort of a, what I would call a, a moralism or a moral tale. So you maybe, if you grew up in a church setting, maybe you heard the story of Jonah and you took away from that, I should not want to run away from God if I don't want to get eaten by an animal. Anyone? Yeah, sure, a few of you, right? Um, and I would say you shouldn't run away from God. Um, I would also say if you do it now, you might not get eaten by an animal. <clears throat> There's so much more going on in this story. Uh, what I want to remind you of this morning as we, as we deal with chapter 4, which is the end of the story, it's just 11 verses. I'm going to go through the story, and then we're going we're gonna to draw some observations from the story. But I want to remind you of this. Remember, and I think I've said this the last couple times, uh, what we're looking for when we read the stories of Scripture, the stories are meant to tell us about the character and nature of God and about our own condition as his created beings. So the story is going to tell us about who God is, what kind of God he is, and the story is going to tell us about who we are. <clears throat> if you are uh, or have been a parent of small children, you may be able to relate to this scenario. We're going to have a great day. We're going to have a fun day. We're going to have a special day. Today we're going to go out. You get to buy a new bicycle. After you buy your new bicycle, we're going to go down and we're going to go riding. After we go riding, we're going to go out to lunch. We're going to get burgers and french fries and milkshakes. After we do, do that, we're going to go to the store and we're going to go shopping. I'm trying to think of all the fun things you can do in Homer. That's about it. Uh, no, after... Uh, after the store, uh, we're going to go up to the reservoir. We're going to go fishing. This is going to be a very special day. And so you take your, you usher your small child or your small children from one activity to the next, and they have uh, a full day of just all of their favorite things to do. And you get home, and it's almost bedtime because you've had a full day, and you're a little exhausted. 
and your child says, wait, but do I get screen time? You say, uh, no, we're, it's been a very long day. You've gotten to do all of these fun things. We're all very tired. We're gonna go straight to bed. And your child says, but I didn't have my screen time. And then your child loses their ever-loving mind, and the rest of the evening, you're dealing with a catastrophe, an emotional meltdown, an inconsolable child who is devastated at the way the day ended. Anyone? <laughs> is that just me? <laughs> this story, Jonah chapter 4, is a story about completely missing the whole point. I don't even know if I can do it. Okay, here we go. So if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, this is the story of Jonah, the book of Jonah. It's only four chapters. It goes like this. God calls Jonah. He says, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh. There's 120,000 people there. They're so morally bankrupt, they don't even know their left hand from their right. I want you to go share the gospel with them. Jonah says, nope, I'm not doing that. And he goes the opposite direction. He pays a fare on a boat. He heads the opposite direction. God, smart guy, finds him on the boat, whips up a storm. Uh, all the people in the boat become very afraid that they're going to lose their lives, throw the cargo overboard to no avail. And they decide this, is, this seems beyond the pale of what would be natural. This seems to be supernatural intervention, which means someone on this boat is in trouble. We got to find out who it is. They cast lots. They find out it's Jonah who had been sleeping down below hiding. They said, Jonah, uh, not so glad that you came along, but can you tell us what's going on? And Jonah says, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the deal is I'm running away from God. And um, he cares so much about the Ninevites that he's not going to let me run away. You should probably throw me overboard. And the, the guys on the ship say, well, we're not going to do that. So they try even harder. Storm gets worse. Finally, they agree. They say, God, this was his idea, not ours. Don't hold us responsible. They throw him overboard. He goes in the ocean, gets swallowed by a whale. He's in the whale for three days. At the end of three days, he says, okay, God, I'm listening. God says, great, because I love the Ninevites. Uh, he spits Jonah out. Jonah goes to Nineveh, preaches through the city three days whole city repents. Now, here's something you need to know about the Ninevites. Now, if we're speaking from Jonah's perspective, so if I say we, collectively I mean Jonah's people, we don't like the Ninevites. The Ninevites have been problematic for centuries. They're always trying to take our land. They're always trying to take our stuff. They're always trying to take our people. In fact, when Jonah was written, was after, uh, this is a little bit of history, the Babylonian exile, which is when uh, all of the Israelites were taken as captives to Babylon for 70 years. And after 70 years, they returned back home. We're actually going to cover this part of the story uh, coming up. They come back home, and they try to rebuild their city, Jerusalem, and it was the Assyrians who gave them trouble who made problems for them. Nineveh is in Assyria. We don't like the Ninevites, okay? Got it? Yeah. yeah. Jonah, chapter 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became very angry. 
What greatly displeased Jonah? People of Nineveh turning to God and confessing their sins. Can you imagine just the horror of preaching to people who are listening? What a drag. He preaches through the whole city, and the whole city calls for collective repentance. The king calls for collective national repentance. Let's plead to the Lord that he would have mercy on us. And Jonah was greatly displeased, and he became angry. And then he prayed to the Lord, and he said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my own country? So in other words, we're actually getting a window into Jonah's original motivation for not wanting to go to Nineveh. I grew up thinking it was because it was Nineveh. If I had been given that assignment today, right now, think about it. Go preach to this city of 120,000 people who are so morally bankrupt they don't know their left hand from their right. I would go, uh, can you pick uh, Dennis? He's very articulate, and he would do a great job. I might do that. That might be my response. But that's not why Jonah was hesitant. Jonah is telling the Lord, I knew how this was going to go. I told you how it was going to go. Any of you have been married long enough to avoid an argument because you know exactly how it's going to go? Anyone? Yeah? <laughs> Don't be too enthusiastic, Ian. <clears throat> My kids will do this. They'll play the would you rather game. Would you rather, and they'll say something awful, or, and then they'll say something else awful, and I'll say, oh, I don't, I don't care. No, pick one. I don't care. No, pick one. All right, I'll pick one. Why would you pick that one? <laughs> That's why I didn't want to answer. I knew how this was going to go. <laughs> was this not what I said when I was still in my own country? Therefore, in anticipation of this, I fled to Tarshish. Since I knew, I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in mercy, and one who relents from disaster. You're the worst. That's why Jonah didn't want to go. I know what kind of God you are. I'm going to go. I'm going to tell them to repent. They're going to repent, and then you're going to relent of your intentions to judge them. And Jonah, I mean, you got to give the guy credit for being honest. Jonah says, I don't want any part of it. So now, Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. actually makes me kind of curious what kind of message he was preaching. You know what I mean? Like in the city, it doesn't sound like it was anything very hopeful. I would rather die than see all of these people receive forgiveness. 
And the Lord said to him, verse 4, do you have good reason to be angry? And apparently Jonah didn't want to talk about it, so he left the city. And he sat down east of the city. And there he made a shelter for himself, and he sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So he leaves Nineveh. There's a revival going on. There's repentance happening. He leaves the city, goes outside the city, sets up at a good vantage point, and says, who knows? Maybe God will still burn it down, and I don't want to miss it. Verse 6, so the Lord designated a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to relieve him of his great discomfort. And Jonah was overjoyed about the plant. And then God designated a worm. And when dawn came the next day, it attacked the plant, and the plant withered. And when the sun came up, God designated a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint, and he begged with all of his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. And God said to Jonah, do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to the point of death. And then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not also have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left, as well as many animals? And that's how it ends. This is what I want to do. Using this chapter, I want to offer you six traits of a person who's on track to totally miss the point. Drawing from the example of Jonah. Six traits of someone who might be on track to totally miss the point. I asked this in my, in my uh, email this week, my preview. Um, have, any of, have any of you ever cared too much about the wrong things? Yeah, that happens, right? Remember, this is a story about the human condition. Have you ever found yourself struggling to care enough about the things that matter? Sure. Some of the traits of a person who, who is on track to totally miss the point. The first one is this. I have a fundamental dislike for the way God is running things. Was this not what I said you would do when I was back in my own country still? My, my experience is that in our dissatisfaction with, with uh, 
the way the world is, we rarely are so bold as to point the finger at God and say, I don't like the way that you're running things. And yet the truth is, is if you have even a, what I would consider to be sort of a weak view of God's sovereignty, God's omnipotence, that means he's, his, he's all-powerful, then God is, is, is over the affairs of mankind. Jonah is on track to miss the point because fundamentally he holds a different view of the way to do things than what God holds. You understand right now, it's, it's, it's repeated all throughout Scripture, God is accomplishing all of his purposes exactly the way that he intended to from the foundation of the world. He's doing it. He's establishing his kingdom. He's preparing his bride, the church. There is a moment of humility that leads to wisdom when I'm able to look out at the world in its brokenness with all of the issues, all of the problems. I'm not blind to those things, but I'm able to look out at the world and see there with my own eyes the wisdom, the grandeur, and the glory of God who is accomplishing all of his good purposes. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Secondly, trait of a person who is on track to totally miss the point. I long for judgment rather than mercy. I long for judgment rather than mercy. Jonah props himself up to the east of the city to wait and see if his true hope will come, and that is that God will judge the city. I would suggest that the primary evidence of someone who's growing in religion rather than in relationship with Jesus is that they long for judgment rather than mercy. It's possible to grow in knowledge and understanding in faith. And miss this critical piece that God desires mercy. James 2.13, judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It is not at all uncommon. In fact, I would say it's probably more common for a person growing in their own understanding of faith, their own understanding of truth, 
their own understanding of God to become, at least in the short term, more severe, less compassionate, more critical, less gracious. Paul predicts this in 1 Corinthians 8. He says, if, you, if, if it's knowledge alone, you will become more arrogant. You will become more intolerable as a human being. Unless you're growing in love, that is, into the image of Christ, into the character and nature of God. He says, knowledge puffs up. I know what's wrong with the world, and I know how to fix it. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If I long for judgment and not for mercy, it's possible that I might be on track to totally miss the point. Number three, I tend to spectate and complain more than I engage. I found myself envisioning the scene that's unfolding as, as, as Jonah leaves the city. We can actually piece that together with no direct evidence because when God moves on the hearts of people's lives, directing them towards repentance, which leads to renewal and restoration, the qualities are the same across history. Marriages are restored. Families are repaired. Relationships that were broken are mended. People in bondage are set free. Imagine the scene in Nineveh that's unfolding as 120,000 people simultaneously all turn their hearts towards the Lord. And Jonah says, I don't want to be here for this. He walks out of the city, sits up on a hill, and says, I'm going to see if God does what he's supposed to do and judge this group. The person who is more comfortable spectating and complaining rather than engaging the world with its brokenness is probably on track to miss the point. Do you remember the parable of the 99 sheep in Luke 15? I think we've misunderstood this at times. It says there was 99 sheep who were uh, in the pen and one that was lost. And, and the shepherd leaves the 99 and he goes to find the one. But then he offers an interpretation. What, what's this picture of? He says in Luke 15, 7, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need for repentance. Jesus is after the one who understands their need for repentance. Think of this. He says there's more joy, there's more jubilation, an outbreak of, of, of excitement and enthusiasm in heaven over one person who repents 
than there is over 99 who have no need for repentance. Now take that one and the scene in heaven and multiply it by 120,000. That's what's happening in the spiritual realm. And Jonah is not a part of it. He's briefly engaged and then retreats to spectate and complain. Now, the good news is, we live in a time, socially, politically, and culturally, where people are not prone to complain. Good, that was a joke, you caught it. The gospel secret, I want you to hear me on this, the gospel secret to cultural change, cultural transformation, social transformation, political transformation, is the mission of disciple-making. We live in a time where the, the very believers who take great issue, who carry grave concern with the way that our culture, the way that we are socially, politically moving, who express great concern, even sorrow over that, are not engaged in the mission of disciple-making, which is the means by which Jesus established his kingdom would be brought to the whole earth. Matthew 28, 18, and Jesus came and spoke to them, and he said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. There it is. God's in charge. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. So what are we going to do with that authority? How are we going to uh, establish my authority? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If you tend to spectate and complain more than you engage, you may be on track to miss the point entirely. Number four, I delight most of all in those things that make my own life better. It's the only, it's the only moment of joy that we see in this book is Jonah rejoicing. It says he was overjoyed about the plant. Overjoyed. I don't blame him. I've been in hot temperatures. I'd like to be in them now. But I've been in hot temperatures. Scorching wind, dry heat, no shade. Fair-skinned. The thing that, that brings delight to my heart more than anything else are those things that make my own life better. Jonah was overjoyed. Second, the next one, number five, is actually connected to this. I mourn, most of all, those things that make my life harder. Isn't that what Jonah's doing? His whole, all of his all of his sort of affections, all of his heart 
is caught up in those things that personally either benefit or harm himself. That's what gets me going. That's what gets me worked up. That's what triggers my emotional response. A good day for me is when things go the way that I want them to. A bad day for me is when things don't go the way that I want them to. God says, do you have good reason to be angry about the plan? <laughs> Again, I'm just stunned by the audacity. Yeah, I have good reason. Very good reason. I like that plant. It was a great plant. I enjoyed that plant. It was helping me. Also, again, I would like to die. There's this passage some of you are familiar with in Philippians 2. It's one that has profoundly worked on my own heart over years. It's, it's one of those ones where I think a lifetime of meditation, even on this chapter, would be worthwhile, Philippians 2. Here's just a section of it. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant, being born in the likeness of men. What he's saying is that Jesus, the Son of God, who had all of the privileges, all of the benefits, all of the blessing that heaven could afford, did not consider all of those benefits so worthwhile that he wasn't willing to let go briefly all of those benefits and blessings, all of the perks of being the Son of God, to come and humble himself, to enter into our miserable state and as one of us, to suffer and die on our behalf. Paul says, have that attitude. Tomorrow, we remember those who paid the ultimate price to make something available to someone else. What a gift. Some of you know Gary Sinhuber. No, I didn't ask your permission to say this. <laughs> Gary is one of our elders. He's a good friend of mine. Gary and I, um, we got a little, hit a few bumps in the road during the pandemic like the rest of you, but Gary and I have been doing coffee every two weeks or so for 80 years, something like that. It's been a long time. <clears throat> I'm amazed. And I've actually, 
I don't know if you're changing or if I'm just more aware. But the thing that moves Gary emotionally when we're talking, just the two of us, is the spiritual condition of his friends. The eternity of his friends. Such a powerful example for me. Because let's be honest, I have a tendency to delight most of all in those things that make my own life better and more and more than anything else, the things that make my own life harder. Number six. The final one, I'm losing faith that living life is of any value. I have a very bleak outlook. Now, I want to be careful here. Without diminishing the reality that anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, they are a complex phenomena. I understand that. Driven by uh, multiple factors. And yet I would also say that in many cases, these symptoms stem from an exaggerated focus on self. Think about it. If Jonah had learned prior to this to find his highest joy in seeing his good God at work saving the lost and the broken, would, this not, would not this same circumstance be the highlight of his career, the apex, the mountaintop? Missionaries by the thousands go all over the globe every year and dream of such an outcome. But Jonah's greatest joy is found in his own comfort and the ruin of his enemies. The loss of comfort is more troubling to him than the loss of life and souls. The loss of comfort is not worth this great outcome in the eyes of God. And so he would rather die. If you're losing faith that living life is of any value, would you consider that it's possible that maybe you've misunderstood what life is? what your purpose is, your calling. And if you want to better understand that, oh man, you should get to know Jesus. I want to end with this. Uh, Drew, you guys can come up. I'm going to end with sort of a separate invitation. This invitation is to those here in the room who maybe more identify with the Ninevites than with Jonah. You might be here and thinking, I don't, I mean, I'm new to all of this. I don't really understand 
trying to sort it out, but honestly, there are times where I feel like I don't know my left hand from my right when it comes to relationship with God and understanding his calling and purpose on my life. Despite his obvious shortcomings, Jonah knew something at the core of his soul that some of you here struggle to believe even a little bit. I knew that you are gracious. A gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, and abundant in mercy, and one who relents of disaster. What a great declaration of the character of the God that we serve. And for those of you who, are, who, who feel like you are struggling to believe, not maybe that that's true for everyone else, but that that's true for you, I'm just one guy, but I want you to know it's true. God is a gracious and compassionate God. I know you think you've ticked him off, but he is actually slow to anger. I know that you think you've, you've run out of opportunities because of the frequency of your own failures, but you should know he is abundant, wealthy. He has a rich bounty of mercy. And some of you, looking at the negative circumstances in your life right now, wondering God's role in that, need to know this, that he is one who relents from disaster. And I would encourage you, today is the day that you can turn to him with great expectation, full of hope and confidence that you will be received. There is more joy in heaven over the one recognizes their need for repentance. Matthew 12, 41. This blew my mind, actually. This is the best part of my whole teaching. This is Jesus speaking to the religious people, the religious leaders who had completely missed the point. He says, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and they will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold something greater is here we get to see them they're part of the family of God the Ninevites they turn to him and Jesus says and then there are some who have received a far greater witness and it will be the people of Nineveh at that future time 
who say, you should have said yes. You could have said yes. I wish you had said yes. God, would you give us the grace to look to you, to cling to you, to without, without apology, without disclaimer, to just rest ourselves on the exceedingly abundant grace and mercy that you offer. having received that indescribable gift, would you, would you sweep us into, bring us into your good purposes here on the earth as you establish your kingdom and prepare your bride for that future day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to spend some time responding to the Word of God, to the Lord. There's a couple of different ways that you can do that now. Uh, You can stand. We're going to worship together, uh, sing praises to the Lord. There will be prayer team ministry members over here. If you have a prayer request of any kind and you would like to pray with someone, you can do that during our worship time. There's also communion. Communion is just a reminder of the spiritual reality. I have died and I've been raised. Amen. Thank you, worship team. It was great. I don't know if you guys remember this, but at Easter, we talked about planting seeds. That's all I can think about as as Jonah was watching this plant grow, watching these people receive God's forgiveness. That's what we've been doing as a church, is planting seeds in the hearts of men and women and children. And that's what we're gonna keep doing planting seeds, watching him water it and grow it. But maybe, maybe you're one of the ones who's had a seed planted and it's been being watered and you're meeting the Lord in a new way. Your next step is baptism. Your next step of obedience, of meeting the Lord, of growing in knowledge, of loving him, is to celebrate in baptism and to say publicly, I wanna live for the Lord. If that's you, go to the info table, see one of us, we'd love to connect with you, tell you about it. Let's make it happen. We don't officially end until 12.30, so if you wouldn't mind sticking around helping our teardown team, that'd be amazing. Um, Have a great week. May God bless you and keep you as you go. Thank you.